And welcome, everybody. This is Huey Stand. I'm Kevin Anne, Eagle Strong Voice. This is the voice of the Republic of Canada and the global resistance to tyranny. It's January 22nd. I have the great fortune today to be meeting with a whole bunch of good people of the Republic National Council in Canada. We're meeting this whole weekend to plan upcoming events in February. And part of that is a leadership training program, which we've already initiated. And we're going to have some of that today on our show. It's kind of like an online teaching that uh, myself and Owen Lucas of our sister Republic Alliance have prepared. It's really, though, the general topic is how to de- defeat a bigger enemy. And we were drawn in a lot of life lessons for that. This uh, show is also based on my book, Truth Teller Shield, a manual for whistleblowers and hellraisers, which you can get at murderbydecree.com or on Amazon. In fact, the Truth Teller Shield is a book even more in demand than our common law training manual, because while the common law manual gives you the theory of common law, how to set up courts, how to take action in your community, the theory behind it, the real practice of what you confront and face when you start doing that is found in this Truth Teller Shield a manual for whistleblowers and hellraisers. So we're going to be talking about that today on the show, myself and Owen Lucas. And as you know, we're here every Sunday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time, bbsradio.com slash here we stand. You can see all our, our, our programs archived there. You can write to us, Republic National Council at protonmail.com, and uh, the website's republicofcanada.org, murderbydecree.com. It's a general point, folks, that if we have a future, it'll be because not only of people of goodwill, but people who are able to harness that goodwill to right action. We've got tons of goodwill these days. We confront and meet all the time, but we need the right action. So today, this show will help you do that, and we'll be back again live next week, preparing for very important actions coming up in February. We'll be getting into that more, especially, and I want to flag this now, the global action on uh, Sunday, February 26th, in memory of William Coombs, the eyewitness to the abduction of children by Queen Elizabeth, and as it turns out now, so-called King Charles. And we're going to commemorate that day with actions at churches, direct actions all over the world. And for more information, please write to us, Republic National Council at ProtonMail.com. We're going to be preparing people today on this show for the actions needed and the wisdom needed to take those those next steps. So stay strong, stay clear, and get strong and clear, even more than you are now. Here's today's show. Thank you very much. I mean, this, 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 is, this is such a, a guidebook for, for you know, the global population at the moment. What's going on now? So much of this, it almost feels prophetic to read that you wrote this in 2016 and how relevant this is tonight. And, and, and you talked about evil corporations just then just uh, uh, here's one of my uh, one of my yellow quotes e- evil is real specific and has an address people and institutions of the lie a russian saying goes that everyone reacts differently to a tickle but always the same to a hot burning iron evil is like that we all may have our own different idea of what evil is in the abstract but when face to face with it we all know evil for exactly what it is an intentional hideous undeterred force of corruption and destruction. And so, like you're, you're alluding to here, people project their own morals and ethics naturally onto other people and, you know, perhaps even corporations and this sort of thing. And, and that's a real big cold shower, I think, that, you know, people in, in arriving into the situation now have to, have to get a grips with. 
is that this this is something you know inverted to what humanity is in its purest form, right? Well, the ancient Greeks had that uh, famous quote, "Know thyself." That's the source of all wisdom. And Sun Tzu says, "Whoever knows thy, their enemy and knows themselves will win every battle." And it's that you know we begin from that place of do we really know who we are, what we're in, and what we're up against. And, you know, our pride and our, our desperation sometimes because of what we're in compels us to think, well, we do know. But the reality is we don't really know until you've engaged actively with it. And I think that's one of the limitations of people now who are engaged in a lot of stuff. They haven't had the practical contact. They've got a sense of the reality either through the Internet or hearsay or somebody else. But you really don't know the nature of something unless you, you, you're stomped by it. You know, the best uh, teacher is a black eye, as they say, right? <laughs> Yeah. And and what seems to be one of their big um, tactics is very subtle, but very, very powerful isolation psychologically. Right. And, we, you know, we're seeing this with this lock up or lockdown or house arrest, whatever you want to say at the moment. And and that drains the uh, the will and the enthusiasm to, to carry on. And and this this book, when when I got hold of it, it was such a pep up. You know, I, I almost said shot in the arm, but it's probably not a, a good phrase for these times. But it, it really, really lifted my spirits. Right. Because all of a sudden, you know, I've been in this, you know, trench for two years and, right. and i found this this book or this this person you who who totally understood where i was and what i was going through and what was happening and and that sense of uh i don't know empathy or comradeship perhaps even, even with a book you know uh, through through your book was was such a um you know a, a lifeline i think is a fair enough expression well i wrote it for exactly folks like you um who are i mean we're our best teachers and we know this we know our our experience never lies to us but we often don't have the confidence to draw the conclusions from what we've been through you know and come to our own understanding um so uh it's just really kind of a, what this has done is simply acknowledge to you what you already knew from something you'd been through and and you know that's the, the most powerful kind of message right but but you kind of don't believe it, you know. Are, are you you sort of yeah. slapping your cheek? Going, is is this actually real? Are, are these corporations that present themselves so you know with bells and whistles and polish or whatever you want to say? The TV stations, you know, are they all really that corrupt and evil and bad? And then all of a sudden, you know, an evidence of a seasoned campaigner like yourself puts this together. You you read it and you absorb it, and you think, wow, all those intuitive uh, reactions that I was getting you know, weren't to be dismissed at all. They were to, you know, that that is the, the highest form of intelligence, right, is intuition. But so many of us want to want to dismiss it, and we want to project, like I said, your, your own uh, energies onto onto others and other bodies. Well, yeah, and it, it's, it's really important for, for people like you and me and others who are have been targeted to get together, have our own support network, because the knowledge we have is a great weapon. It's the one thing the opposition doesn't want for us to share what we've been through with others, uh, our knowledge of this system, right? Um, and that's why I laid out the book kind of like uh, in steps almost, right? Like the actual attack on you, how you engage with your adversary, how you learn about them, um, how you survive, and how in the long run you're actually transformed and your pain and suffering in turns out to be a doorway to something bigger which is your own transformation so that you can be a model for others in this long fight. So I found for myself, my original idea of what I wanted, you know, this notion of justice and the return of my job and my family, it was gone forever, but I couldn't accept that fact. But that 
pain allowed me to transform and go to a higher level where I could start looking at these other issues, right? right. You know, the genocide in Canada, but then, you know, the child trafficking and sacrificial killings by, by the Vatican and all these other crimes really connected to the COVID police state today. So I, I got transformed, but we've got to be open to that transformation. We've got to see that our pain is a doorway to a higher purpose, really our, our, our purpose why we're put here, you know, often. There's, there's a phrase, your greatest gifts come wrapped up as your worst nightmares. And, and, and yeah. I think that, you know, through this process, I've been at six, you know, not, not as many uh, years as yourself, but it's, it's almost a, an irony that, that your self-worth rises through um, your resilience that you found. And yet exactly. at the same time, you're, you're feeling this kind of isolation process going on. And, and you know your 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 public self worth, if you like, your, your profile publicly is is being you know systematically undermined and, and deliberately so. If if if, if your examples are uh, to be taken uh, valid, and of course they are. <laughs> well, yeah, and I remember before this all happened, my greatest joy was you know to be with my kids and do my work uh, as a minister in that. And then after a few years of losing all that, I found that I had an even higher joy. By sitting with a group of people who had been through these crimes and just realizing that I was help, helping them take the next step and we were saying no to this murderous machine and these people who had done this to them, that gave a satisfaction that no human love, that no um, worldly accomplishment could ever come close to. Because we were, you know, as one of the native survivors said to me once, um, I used to be a victim, now I'm a threat. Right. And she said it with such joy. She was a 75-year-old woman crushed her whole life, severe alcoholic because of the torture she'd been through at a very young age. And now there was a light in her eyes. She said, I know how to fight these bastards and win. I'm not afraid of them anymore. So now I'm a threat. And, you know, there was such triumph in her voice when she said that. And I thought, you know, this makes all the suffering worth it just to have one person who you can help get to that point, right? She, she, she finds that, that uh, individual autonomous power at a time when you'd, you'd never expect to, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, as a matter of fact, something really right soon after that, we, we had that talk in the healing circle in the downtown part of Vancouver. Uh, about a week later, one of the native guys on the street was grabbed by the police and beaten up severely and thrown in the uh, in a cell. Uh, Maggie, who's the name of this native woman, I saw her personally at around midnight. She was standing on Main Street right outside the Vancouver police station. She was dragging a police barrier across the road to block the traffic to have a protest to demand that Trevor be released. And she was facing these 20 riot cops all by herself, just yelling at them, you know, you let Trevor go. She had no fear. And he was a woman who had been crushed in every way imaginable. She was this broken, kind of stereotypical drunk Indian, right? And there she is out on the street without an ounce of fear because she had lost any fear. Uh, you know, that, that fear of death and loss that controls so many of us. Once you lose that, you're unbeatable. All they can do is kill her, but that doesn't stop her, right? I mean, that uh, spirit enters into the whole big soup and inspires others, right? And I, I, I just remember that image of her out and <laughs> facing the ride cops thinking, you know, this is called a victory, right? <laughs> <laughs> and and how, how were the cops? They, they were totally dumbfounded. that someone... They did. They didn't know what to do. As a right. matter of fact, I went over and talked to them, and I said, you know, you guys had better back off because there's a lot more people like her out there. Right? <laughs> and, uh, the, and sure enough, a couple of hours later, they let Trevor free because there's a whole bunch of us out there. We wouldn't budge. We're sitting down on the street till they let him out. And uh, I think that's an example for today, a lesson for today, how you get results. 
you know, you just put it right in their face. You show them you're not afraid. You see, you, we see through their lies and we're not backing down. Right. And, and there's, there's a, an example in this book as well about the, uh, the, the auto parts factory and, and they have a sit in, right? That, right. that's audacious, uh, surprise, I think is a fair enough word, right? It's a surprise attack in, in against the enemy, right? Right. And, and they sat in the building and, and the, the corporate heads and the, you know, the money classes, they had absolutely no idea about what to do about this, uh, you know, flag in the turf, right? That was uh, uh, in the 1930s in America, in, in some of the big auto plants, when there was a big unionizing drive. And nobody had ever done that before. You know, the whole sit-ins in the 60s student protests, they borrowed it from that tactic. These auto workers just on their own realized, hey, look, what's the point of striking outside the factory? Let's sit in here and grab the boss's property, and then he'll have to come to the negotiating table. And sure enough, they buckled within a week of the sit-in starting, right? The, the factory occupations. And th- those tactics are used all over the world spontaneously by people because it's the basic thing. Strike at what the enemy loves. Strike at the, their heart, which is money and public image. Right. And we found that with the churches. They buckled in the same way when we started occupying churches on Sunday morning back in 2007 and 2008. The apology happened soon after that. They realized that ch- we know the churches went to the government of Canada and said, you better do something quick because our property is at stake here. So, you know, that's one of the tactics we talk about in, in the book. And, and, and there seems to be a, um, a reaction that they, they, they back away quickly. It's, they're very brittle with their uh, power. And, and that once that, you know, that, that one lone woman, right, you know, Gandhi springs to mind as well, the, the salt mine marches, this kind of thing. Right. These, these individuals who've shown a fear and, and, you know, get on the front foot and, and stand in the faces of them, it, it, it has a, an energetic power, right? We're talking spiritual uh, right. force. Right? Moral force is unbeatable, um, but you just can't stop. And that's the thing. People get tired, which is understandable. Um, but it's like, remember my grandfather's stories from World War I. Uh, in his Canadian regiment, there were three lines. There was the front line, the support line of the people who are going to come to relieve them, and then the rear guard where you'd go for recovery, rest and relaxation, right? And they would rotate all the time. So um, you couldn't keep people on the front line for very long or they'd get wiped out. So we have to have a movement big enough that can do that. You know, you have frontline people, but then you learn, you go back, you do a seminar, you teach people stuff. You don't have to be on the front line all the time. That's how new people learn by it. So in other words, it's a, it's a collective effort. It isn't just one expert doing this stuff, right? Yeah. And I'm talking about the front line. Um, you know, what sprung to mind then was, was the, the tornado in Rome, right? In the Vatican. <laughs> so, so, so you, you guys, I'd, I'd really love to, to, you know, hear your version of this. But as a summary, you, you went, you went to the Vatican to exercise energetics and uh, dark, shadowy energetics that that place has gathered over, you know, hundreds of years. And the response was from the planet, from the cosmos, uh, tornadoes in the city of Rome that have never been recorded in terms of metrology, right? The next morning, yeah. October 11, 2009, I had been invited. Well, at that point, I had been shut out of Canada after they brought in the official spin on the residential schools and the apology and all that. My name got swabbed out of the press. We were really marginalized after that because everything we had produced, all the evidence at murderbydecree.com, right, everything you could see in there, that was conflicting with the official spin, which said 
oh, no, there were just a few children harmed and it wasn't deliberate genocide, right? So they had to kind of remove us from the public memory. But right at that same time, I got invited over by a bunch of folks in, in Ireland to start a similar campaign in Europe. And that culminated uh, in when we formed that tribunal that put Ratzinger and the others on trial and the Queen and others. But before that, I had gone to Rome to give some talks in that. And it didn't start out as an exorcism. I actually went there to do a memorial service in St. Peter's Square for all the victims of the Catholic Church. And I had brought some soil from one of the mass graves of children at a Catholic Indian school in Ontario. And I was going to do a simple ceremony. And then I'm standing there and I'm thinking, well, wait a minute. We're, we're in front of the beast here, you know. All right. <laughs> I can't pass this opportunity up. <laughs> so I thought, okay, well, let's call out that, you know, that, that spirit. And I actually had taken part in an exorcism once in Port Alberni. Uh, I know these forces are real, and I felt it there in a big way. So I thought, okay, let's put it right back in their face. And what was really interesting, Owen, is you're not allowed to stand in St. Peter's Square and do any kind of ceremony, political protest. The Rome police and the Vatican cops show up and, and arrest you. They had just done that to a group of Native women the previous month who had tried it, right? So there I am standing in St. Peter's Square with my regalia, with the, uh, the the soil from the grave of these children who had been murdered by this church. And I just called them out. I, in the first stage of an exorcism, you, you call on the entity to name itself, expose itself, and thereby lose its power. And I did this untouched. These cops are walking by me like I'm invisible. Like, I don't know. I can't explain that. But I, I was untouched the whole time. I wasn't even challenged by anybody. The next morning at about 8 a.m., a tornado hits the center of Rome. Right. The first one in about 40 years. You can look it up in Il Manifesto. I've, I've got it reproduced, you know, the article showing all these chairs and everything blown all over the place. Wow. Um, it just struck out of nowhere. And that same week, what was even more interesting, that same week, the European media started reporting how the Pope Benedict at the time was covering up child, child crimes against children, not just, you know, rape, but trafficking and even murder. And so, sure enough, that whole thing opened up and it's never been closed since, right? So we are connected with a power we don't even understand. It's greater than ourselves. But I was thinking all of the people over the centuries have been harmed by that church. Yeah, they were they were acting through what we do. And, and you know, I believe very much that happens too. There's a whole spiritual element of this that we can't ignore, right? Yeah, and, and, and it must have been, again, a, a real um, enthusiasm boost to, to feel that there was uh, an ally that you had that was, you know, from, from the galaxy, from, from, the, from the ether, right? And, and, and that, you know, what, you, what you're doing is, is far more than, you know, Newtonian building blocks going about his business, that you're, you're on a, a mission, you know, from, from a much higher or, or uh, vast perspective. I uh, believe that's true. Yeah, I've learned that in, in practice. You know, I didn't set out with that idea at all. I just thought this was one thing, and it's evolved into something much bigger, right? Right, completely. And, and so that was before or after the 2013 – no, that was 2010, right, you just said? 2009. It was 2009. three years before we started the actual court case that convicted Okay, and, and yeah. how, did, how did that, you know, I think it's really relevant for, for people to hear how, you, you know, was, was it, how did the first email go to get that 2013 court case where you're uh, finding two popes, a queen, prime ministers, and these top bigwigs of, you know, corporations or whatever. You've, what's, what's, the, what's the spark? What's, what's the initiatory uh, moment that, that puts or gets all that momentum going towards that? 
Put well, it wasn't. It was a whole process, and it had started in Canada in 1995. We were just, it was like a tsunami building. We are building on all the evidence, all the work we'd done. People in Ireland and Europe had heard about me, and they invited me over. You know, I remember sitting the first time I was in a group of people in Dublin um, when we were forming the tribunal. They were telling me the same kind of stories I'd heard all over the Aboriginal world in Canada. Same crimes, same cover-up, the same church doing it, the medical experimentation using children and drug testing that killed them. Pfizer that are pushing the COVID wow. shots now, using children experimentally. You know, I often say to people, why the hell would you take a needle from a, fa- a murderous drug corporation? And they're compliant governments, right? Um, but anyway, that like... Just on that one, John, Johnson Johnson, similarly, uh, there was a yeah. group of mothers that got together and found that the Johnson Johnson products were carcinogenic and, uh, you know, they had a huge um, litigation bill, I think, for that. And then, yeah, uh, similarly, you know, they're, right. they're another one. Well, Merck, Pfizer, Eli Lilly, they're all complicit. Bayer, they go back to the Nazi era. They, these are genocidal corporations, and that's a whole other issue. But right. I'm sitting there listening to all the Irish talking about this, and I said, look, you know, we're facing the oldest corporation on the planet, spans borders we've got to be united across borders to do that and that's where the idea of the tribunal came about but again it's like from from the uh you know truth tellers shield here um the basic question you always have is where is your enemy weak you never attack them where they're strong but where are they weak and again it's the public image so we started hitting catholic churches in downtown dublin and we got tons of media coverage the irish independent the other you know it was a popular topic and our advantage was we had a lot of evidence. We had a lot of eyewitnesses coming forward. Um, so there being a lot of preamble, which made it easier for us. It's a lot harder these days if you start cold on an issue with a lot of evidence and, and witnesses. Uh, you got to spend your whole time trying to convince the world. And that's not our job to convince people. Our job is to attack an enemy where they're weakest and bring out the truth. Because like you say, these corporations, that's just a fiction. It's just a facade. Behind it are human beings who can be reached, and they don't want to lose their legal uh, coverage, um, their insurance coverage. They don't want to be legally liable for anything. And uh, when you do threaten that, then they start buckling. It happens quicker than than people realize, you know, who are standing on the sidelines of the struggle, right? Yeah. And, and you see it very clearly as, as an adversary, an enemy, and, and it's it's – you know, perhaps not a conventional war, but but it is, it is a warfare situation that's been running for decades, centuries, perhaps millennia, right? And it's and a war, and you're it's... comfortable with that, right? Because I I hear a lot of dialogue at the moment. You know, the word war, civil war, is being touted around here, there, and ever, and, and a lot of uh, people are are uncomfortable with it because they feel like it's a um uh, a nudge in in that direction to to all right, like we're feeding the violence by even using the language, right? But, but, well, but you're, 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 I, I too, I, I share your, your comfort with that because if, if you're being, you know, baseball batted to the floor, then you're in a, you're in a combat situation, right? And how you, how you deal with that is, is uh, a practicality. Well, I mean, they've, they've killed my friends. They've killed people I know out on a murder. William Coombs, who saw Queen Elizabeth take those children, murder, you know, arsenic poison in St. Paul's hospital in Vancouver. I mean, and they've done everything possible of physically killing me. So it's like when you're in a, in a war and you're under fire, you can't deny what go. It's suicidal to deny what's happening to you. So I'm going from an experience, not, ah, let's go get the bastards. It's, it's more like, how are we going to defend ourselves in the face of this? And um, they have no qualms. The people who, who we are, 
are facing on this stuff have no qualms about killing other people. They get other people to do it for them, but they have no worry about that. So it's not so much entering into violence, but recognizing that if you stand back, you are engaged in another form of violence, the violence of the system. By not challenging it, you're aiding and abetting that violence. So it's really a question of how do we do this with the least damage possible? You do that by, as I did with this whole movement, striking at at where they're vulnerable. And um, ultimately, they're just people, and they they even their conscience. You see, I find with people in these leadership positions, their conscience has been atrophied at a very young age. They've they've you know people like to talk to them about them as if they're lizards or they're you know dehumanized soulless clones or something. No, that's not true at all. They're human beings because people are capable of almost anything in the right circumstances, right? We know that from the death camps in Europe. We know that from the residential schools. These people who did the crimes were ordinary men and women. Uh, I remember that uh, there was this uh, famous talk, Robert Jackson. He was one of the American prosecutors at Nuremberg. And he gave a talk in, after World War II to a Jewish congregation in, in Manhattan. And he said to them, the SS were no different than you and I. Right. And it caused, they, it just scandalized. Everyone was up in arms when they and outrage when he said that, but he said, no, when you look at it, it was only a very small minority who were actual psychopaths. Everybody else was ordinary people put in a, in a corporate structure where you can defer moral responsibility to somebody else. So the guy said, Oh, I just drove the train and loaded them. I didn't kill them. Well, um, I pulled the trigger, but I, uh, one of the bullet, there was a blank in one of the guns, which they always do on firing squads. So giving people, individuals, a feeling that, well, maybe I didn't kill them, to allow them a moral way out of an amoral situation, right? So we're, we're dealing with men and women they could be reached. This is a struggle for hearts and minds. And as we saw, like all of this stuff wouldn't be happening now with all of, like America now has announced they're going to do an investigation into the Indian schools. And they're using the same rhetoric, the same cover-up as in Canada. But I'm thinking that's happened because of the example of a very few of us. We cause that whole earthquake that's happening now, right? And the same thing can happen in this whole battle against the COVID police state because they're shaking. I mean, they're they're using very desperate measures, as we've talked about before. It shows that their their backs are to the wall. I think. Yeah, hundred percent, hundred percent. There was a, a, just this afternoon. I was I was listening to um, a woman over here, Rachel Elner. She was looking at the um, the triangle um, of persecutor, victim, and rescuer. And she was saying that there's a fight and flight aspect. And so when when uh, people are children, if they haven't got either option to fight or flight, then then this um, a sort of buffer zone of, of numbness, emotional numbness builds up. Right. And then yeah. that, that provides a, a space or a capacity for um, psych- psychopathy to yeah. arrive. That's quite a broad way to say it. But in, in comes this this perhaps phantom self is is a, a, a an interesting way to, to look at it and and that maneuverability that uh, mind control is is much easy to easier to facilitate if a child has been brought up in in an awful tra- traumatized and and difficult the, the the boarding school uh, environment is very much like a concentration camp environment it appeals to, seems to me and it's, and and there seems to be a um you know a a prevalence and a preference to get as much concentration camp uh, environment, you know, whether that's schools or whether that's prisons or, you know, whatever it is. And and that perhaps again, facilitates and uh, assists the 
the modern yeah. population stuff, right? Well, you know, the whole British aristocracy, they went through these. I remember, you know, Churchill describing the way he was flogged as a little boy at, at Eton or Harrow or wherever it was. I went to a private boys' school for four years when I was in elementary school in Winnipeg. It was fashioned on the British model of, right. you know, we, we had our hair grabbed. We were beaten by the teacher. In the 1960s, corporal punishment was still legal and encouraged in Canada, just like in England. So when you're brutalized at a young age, you lose empathy. You lose empathy for yourself, and so you can't really have it for anybody else. And you're this numb, you know, that classic uh, uh, film of Bill Gates sitting, giving testimony in front of the Congress. And uh, he's got, he's sitting there with his arms around himself, rocking back and forth, right? Right. Like, you know, self-medicated position of an abused child. Well, what the hell happened to him? It, in a way, it, in, it's irrelevant because what he's serving now It's a corporate system that requires that kind of individual. So the problem is the system. It isn't, you know, like. Well, they're farming psychopaths on there. They are, yeah. And and you've got to be psychopathic to function and and dissociated to operate in the society, right? And when you're not dissociated, you're a a disruption in their system. And we talk about that in this book, too. Like, um, all you have to do is stand on your own conscience and never stop. And you cause their whole machine to come to a sputter and stop. And the longer one person does that, the more the machine comes to a stop. That's the power one one man or woman have. But we're taught to think, well, you can't do anything unless you have thousands of people. Well, it only took a couple of dozen of us to force the genocide onto the Canadian agenda because we we just never gave up and we had all the solid evidence, right? And and you, you lacked fear. That's That's a crucial factor, right? And they could feel that. We, we uh, had fear individually, but together we lost it, and that's how it works. Um, you know, the classic example I give about William Coombs, who couldn't even go near a Catholic church because it would make him physically ill. He heard a church bell because he used to torture him on a rack, Catholic priests, and sodomize him um, with an electric cattle prod. I mean, so we, he couldn't go near a church. But the day we occupied Holy Rosary Church in, in uh, 2000, March 2008, he was there inside with us. And I thought, how the hell did you do that? He couldn't have done it on his own. But he said to me, I didn't want to let everybody down. I wanted to be there for all of you. Right? And that was the best healing he ever had. And he didn't drink. He gave up drinking for a while after that because it gave him such a sense that I'm not afraid of these people. I'm not afraid of these priests anymore. But he got that from all of us doing it together. So there's just so much you can do as an individual. The integrity starts here. But it manifests in a, uh, all of us doing it, or not even all of us, but a, a conscious, determined minority, they're the ones who can move mountains, and we've proven that, right? Someone coming into this zone now, as I think you know, multitudes will be, it's, it's very uh, deflating to see that, that enormity of, of the corporate world and, and the, you know, the, the police and the agencies of the state, et cetera, et cetera. And, and, and that, I feel, is, is, a, is one of the weapons that they count on most, is that oh, yeah. uh, the enormity of, of what they're up against and, and the illusion of that too. And, and yet you're saying that just saying no, just, just holding firm in, in who you are and with your autonomy and your sovereignty is enough to put a real dent in, in, in their operations and, and, and to give you enough self-worth and, and self-belief to, you know, take a day I by think day. There's, some of us can do that better than others. It's just a question of character. It's different. 
But with everybody, here's the case. I remember there was a famous battle in the American Civil War where these um, there were a bunch of Confederates, and they outnumbered the Union forces attacking them. But they're up on this mountain, and the Union soldiers were stretched in a very long line, and all the Union soldiers could see their strength. They just looked to left and right, they could see it. But the Confederate soldiers were in these little nooks and crannies, and they couldn't see their strength. All they could see were thousands of guys coming at them. And even though they outnumbered the Union forces and they had better, they were better armed and in better strategic position, they broke and ran because it was a simple question of morale. They could see all of the enemy's strength, and they couldn't see any of their own. And similarly, the Union forces realized they're up against these guys, but look at all of our strength. And I always remember that now because – that's the way it is on the Internet. All we can see sitting there by yourself is all of the strength of the enemy. It's done 99% of what you see is contrived because it's designed to create fear. They don't have that power. They don't have a lot of people masking or taking the shot. We don't know how many people are, but they're telling all the time how strong they are, how invincible they are, how there's no alternative but to go along. That's creating a frightened slave population. So we literally have to turn our mind off of that and look around. And just know from our own life, look at our strength. Look at what we've endured as human beings over thousands of years. That's our strength, right? And look at the example of a few of us who have forced change. That's why they keep censoring out all the news of what we've done, because so the people can't take strength and courage from that, right? Sapping the enthusiasm. It's, it's a sort of a, it's a bluff brinkmanship, right? Right. It's all psychological warfare. It's, it's all bluff and, and hot air. In, in order to sink psychologically the opponent, and when, as Sun Tzu says, out of war, you once once that uh, belief and, and enthusiasm and yeah. hearts and minds have gone, then then the battle's over. You, you, we on page hundred and ten, we got we got a, the, the question I sent you. In in what context should today's truth tellers interpret Vietnam veteran Daryl Adams' words in nineteen eighty one? The problem for me isn't surviving. The problem is how to relate to the rest of humanity now that my eyes are open. So here we have a, a, a sort of split societally. It's really evident over here where, you know, they're, they're helping it along as much as they can with the vaxxers versus the anti-vaxxers or, you know, they're splitting us wherever possible. But that, um, that relationship of the truth teller and the person standing firm, their, their whole social world is – it's going to blow apart, right? It's, it's going to completely metamorphosize. Right, and that's the first stage. Uh, and the only way to go through that is to realize that you don't have to relate to the rest of humanity. Uh, because don't forget, that's an abstraction. It's like saying the state or the church, or those are abstractions. They don't exist. What exists is our experience of the men and women around us. And those are the ones we relate to. And in fact, when you find, when you start talking to people, you find that the differences are a lot less than we imagine, right? Um, even with people who are in favor of the shot or against the shot, that's that's a false uh, narrative that's been created that we're all supposed to mimic, right? Divide and rule, classic. Absolutely. So we just ignore that whole agenda, and we understand the methods they use against us. Like, you know, the old saying, power isn't what you have necessarily, it's what your enemy thinks you have. So, you know, um, if there's enough people, who are simply saying no, they're, and they already have backed off when that's happened. You know, when police have, have stood outside legislatures in Canada, which they did recently, and said, we're not taking the shot, suddenly you see them backing off a bit because, uh, you know, in terms of the regulations they're bringing in and everything. So, I mean, it's, um, it's all that battle for, um, you know, our own mind, really, comes down to, right? 
the the phrase psychopath as well has has a lot of charge to it, right? The movies show a psychopath to be, um, you know, an axe wielding killer, cold blooded murderer, this kind of thing. And, and again, I feel that that's very much a, what you might call a predictive programming or whatever to uh, to, to increase that that fear and, and lack of of self belief again. Uh, another quote here. Every powerful institution on a planet is led and run by functional psychopaths who must subordinate every human feeling and restraint to the dual corporate goals of efficiency and self-preservation. There are no exceptions, from governments to private companies to churches and the military. Once you run afoul of such a system and you show that you can't or won't cooperate with its inhuman requirements, then how that machine seeks either your compliance or your destruction will follow a predictable pattern and method in the darkness that is descending or will descend on you your own experience your inner stamina and your unsullied common sense are your best guides and weapons now and in the times to come in the new conditions that are your life there is no one for you to trust except yourself and whatever greater power you believe in regardless of your faith or lack of it you must become your own gospel and compass yeah yeah, well, I mean, it, it's, again, we all learn that when you go through that. And, uh, you know, right after that, I talk about the three Ds, uh, distraction, discrediting, and and destruction, right, which is the, the methods they use to counter what we're doing. And any of us who take a stand, we face this, right? Um, they distract by getting people not to look at what you're talking about. They try to discredit you through the usual smear campaigns. And usually they'll get people to come forward to pretend that they know you and say, oh, yeah, I can see through him. He's a fraud, blah, blah, blah. You can see that shit about me all over the Internet still. Yeah. Um, and the final stage, if none of that works, is they just destroy you. But they don't want to kill you. That's a last resort, which makes you a martyr. They want to get people so afraid of you that they don't want that no one will listen to you or, you know, and that's what they've tried you know, with me, but again, it doesn't, like I often say to people, a smear campaign helps you in the long run because it's meant to take you out quickly. And if it doesn't, it just brings more attention to you. Right. And people say, oh, that guy's still around. Really? After this long? Well, I wonder why. Like, maybe he's got something to say, right? Pe- peaks and troughs, right? Could could you plot a, a graph with your, your peaks and troughs on the, along those lines? Oh, very much, yeah. Um, I find the attacks come when I start getting more exposure and different place when it starts having an impact. And then the main way they do it is they come in with their substitute, like the, the, their version of the, of the story. Um, that's what corporate damage control and PR is all about. It's, so in, in a way you, you can gauge your, your success or how well you're doing by the amount of grief, uh, the, the, the intensity of, of the attacks coming at you, particularly smear campaigns, right? Oh, yeah, but, I mean, they, they only use smear campaigns to one degree. That isn't their chief weapon. Uh, that's to get people to drop away so you don't have support. Um, and, you know, again, like trying to isolate you, the main weapon is they create their substitute reality for people to believe. So, for example, in Canada, um, they talked about, oh, yeah, okay, they're mass graves now. They finally, after 20 years of us talking about it, they say, yeah, they're mass graves. But there's only 215 children. And we don't really know how they died, and that's all we could find. So now, everywhere in Canada you go, when the topic of residential schools come up, you don't hear 60,000 children, which is what we proved. You see that number 215. So they've got to burn that number in people's head, and they go, oh, well, a couple of hundred children, that's unfortunate, but it's not genocide, is it? Right. So, it, again, they're, they're, they, they, you can't – from a I remember reading uh, excerpts from a CIA manual 
during the Vietnam War. It said, you cannot, contr- you cannot stop a revolution, but you can guide it. You can guide the flow of that river. And that's what they always try to do. They take an issue and energy and guide it along the, chain, the path that they can control. And they normalize the crime, they minimize it, and then hope people go back to sleep. Control the narrative, right? I, I really feel like Donald Trump is, is very much in that, that kind of guise. I, you know, you look at a couple of characters in history and perhaps um, uh, the guy from the French Revolution, his name, forget, escapes me, but um, they come to me. Uh, they they they're putting in their their patsy characters, right? They're they're stooges to to play the Pied Piper's uh, flute and and pull all the the people of this ilk and this kin uh, along with them, and and they're controlling the narrative. Even if it's there's a great book by a guy called David McGowan, uh, Weird Scenes Inside the Canyon, which is a play on the Jim Morrison and the Doors quote oh, yeah. uh, lyric, Weird Scenes Inside the Gold Mine. But the canyon is Laurel Canyon outside Los Angeles, and and they. His his point of the book basically is is they set up the uh, the hippie movement in the sixties, especially to control the anti-war um, yeah. sentiment. Well, they like the CIA introducing LSD into the movement. The LSD was developed by in CIA labs in the fifties, and it just strung everybody out, right? Um, and made them very inward and and you know self-absorbed and everything that the the movement had been building up. They try to disintegrate, but they get, that only works if people um, go along with it. And um, again, it's about a, it's a question of character and stamina, very much. It's, it seems to me that they've cried wolf too much. There's, there's been so much frequency of, of you know, Black Lives Matter and uh, what, what, whatever they're, they're trying to pull this time. It's, it's almost obvious the moment it starts what, what's, what's going on with it. And a, and a couple of little uh, digs around at the, at the, the leaders of these sort of things, and you see the way follow the money, if there's a scandal, follow the money. Right? And, and you, they, they just seem to be getting busted far more quickly than, than perhaps they would have in, in the 60s. And, and they're, they're, they're busted flush, perhaps. They, they're they're running, running out of ideas, right? Yeah, well, time is on our side. That's the reality. We have time and numbers on our side. Um, and, again, it's just turning away from their reality onto ours, right? Being a soulless machine, the thing, capital T, you face, lives according to the lies, appearances, and measures required to preserve its own power and nothing more. This makes someone like you, this truth teller, quite incomprehensible to it. Just how, just as how it operates makes no sense to you as a moral being. Ask for justice or decency from it, and you will face a dead wall of indifference, hollow rhetoric, or meaningless gestures. But threaten its operations and income, and it will suddenly notice you, and it will be forced to respond to you. And, and again, that's, that's taking the narrative back from them, right? So, so that they have to respond to it's, – it's the front foot, I, I, my phrase at the moment. Oh, well, I, you know, Sun Tzu's classic example that it doesn't matter how small you are. If you define the terms of battle, you'll win. Whoever defines the, the terrain, he calls it forming the ground. You define an issue, you define the narrative, and you stick to it, and they have to come around to you. We did that. We said it's genocide, it's not child abuse, um, and now everyone's using the word genocide. Right. It's just a matter of, you know, kind of physics. You can just enforce relative force. Um, and one of the parts in the book I want to point out, too, is called on page 41, learning the sniper's trade, the advantage of being small, mobile, and unpredictable. Because and so from, from that principle, 
is is it yes. better to stay small? You know, do, if if these assemblies get too big and unwieldy, that's a disadvantage, perhaps. That's what we found. Every one of our big assemblies was taken out. Um, we operate in cell groups now with three people go around, and you can strike out of nowhere and disappear, and they don't know what you're going to do next. That's classic guerrilla warfare. You uh, you live off the strength of the enemy. You define the terms of battle. They have to guard against you at every point. They can only act in certain ways because they're an unwieldy big corporation. Uh, they have protocols and policies to follow and vested interests. We don't have any of that. Uh-huh. And so what you, you never do what the enemy expects you to do or you're lost. So you don't go out and hold a protest. They're expecting that. Um, you know, you don't write a petition. That's all containable, right? right. You do something totally new and, and, and original. And I remember um, – <laughs> There's a guy, Saul Alinsky, wrote a book called Rules for Radicals. He was a community organizer in Chicago. And uh, in the 60s, he was trying to uh, integrate one of the airports. And um, they said, okay, uh, let's not pick at the place. Let's have a shit-in. <laughs> a shit-in was they went and occupied all the toilets in the airport. And within an hour, the whole place was shut down because there were all these people running to catch flights. And they couldn't get into the bathroom. All the bathrooms were locked and people were sitting in the toilets not coming out. And the airport buckled immediately. It gave what gave in immediately and desegregated. I think it's Atlanta, Atlanta, Georgia or something. But the point is that um, you've got to do what hurts them and which they don't expect. And once you've done that, it doesn't matter how small you are. One person doing that has an amazing impact way beyond their numbers. Is, is it your books? There's um, a passage I remember from somewhere where, leadership is is an interesting one too that they have these very rigid and and brittle structures of of leadership and chain of command and yet we we have no leadership we're we're all autonomous and sovereign and so they can't disrupt and uh, interrupt um any leadership they can't take out leaders right because there aren't we're we're all we're all working from our own um engines right exactly that's why you've got to generalize the knowledge all the time you don't have a few experts. And if you have experts, they've got to pool their knowledge so everybody knows it. Um, yeah, it's like you used to do in my church. I would sit down and give somebody else a turn to get up at the pulpit, right? I'd open the pulpit to anybody, right? It's the same idea. Um, also, in a police state, which is what we're in, a global police state, you have to operate in that way because, you know, you've got to have cells all over the place. Otherwise, you lop off the leaders and everything falls apart. And um, you can't have the kind of hierarchical structure to kiss of death. You need decentralized cell group operation. And, and that's uh, very much a sign of, of their um, weakening, I think, is that, you know, a main characteristic of psychopathy, lack of empathy, uh, vindictive exploitation, but also um, not deception, um, where, where, where you're, you can't be you, you, your cover. You can't be seen. There's a, the words escaping yeah, me. But um, so so that so that they're they're, in the, they're hiding, right? And and so what's happening now is that it's you know the sea monsters coming up to the surface, the elephants coming into the room, whatever whatever expression you want to use. And and so you know the world can see much more clearly what was far less uh, evident back in back in the day, right? Absolutely. And, you know, I can't figure out strategically why the system is doing this. They're, they're killing themselves because they're, they're attacking everybody now. You never attack everybody. The, the strength of, of an elite lies in dividing and conquering. 
you know, uh, in attacking one group and pitting another group against another. They're not doing that. They've got the scattergun approach where everybody has to do it. Everybody has to get the shot. You know, those fairly conservative policemen would not have been protesting if they had been exempt. But they don't make them exempt. Everybody has to do it. So that, to me, is a sign that the people on top are increasingly unstable. Um, You find that in history when empires fall apart. The people at the top make increasingly self-destructive decisions, uh, almost like they want to fall apart. They want their empire to end um, because it's not rational what, you know, the political and corporate leaders are doing nowadays. You mean mean they they want to self-destruct at a deep sort of subconscious psychological level? I believe so. I think that there's this death. There's a death wish in any in any oppressive system on the part of the people. At a soul level, they want to escape. I think so. I think that that's at work, definitely. And now we can play on that. Like they divide and conquer us, we can divide and conquer them. And it happens really easily. You can do it. You just appeal to the human being behind the big mask, right? They, they, they do it themselves. Over, over here, you know, the government is trying to install these rules to get children injected. And, and their, their main scientific advisors, the, the JCVI, the Joint Committee of Vaccine, blah, blah, blah. I can't remember that. But, but basically these this, you know, the science has been back in the government all the way through, but now it's got to the children and they can feel, you know, the, the public fury about this potential. They've come out publicly and put their own fissure or, or crack yeah. in the dam, whatever you want to say, between themselves and the government because they don't want to be associated with this, with this corral of slurry pit, right? You know, the, uh, the instinctive, um, desire parents to protect their children that's something that's a powerful force in nature most of the people both in the uh the campaign about genocide and in our republic movement in canada 80 percent of the people in meetings are women and they're often mothers you know and they say the same thing all the time i'm doing this for my children for the next generation that's a powerful force that they can't overcome right that's innate in us right yeah yeah one, one more quote to finish, Kevin. We, we, we hit the hour again. Let's, uh, okay. let's just go with this one. War of maneuver. Flowing from this guerrilla army stance is the recognition that most of our active engagement of our adversary does not consist of direct confrontation, but of a constant war of maneuver in order to find the key moment and place at which to strike. Okay, German word coming up here. Apologies if anybody's uh, <laughs> first language. The Schwerpunkt or decisive point in any battle. The war of maneuver is best understood by recognizing that in the natural order, power is not found in solid phenomena, but in a constant energetic flow of relationships, which are always in constant flux. The power of a squirrel to cross a river on a log lies neither in the log or in the squirrel in themselves, but in their temporary combination. That brief union is their power. Every human interaction and social conflict is the same way. And the outcome is determined not by fixed methods, but by what momentary maneuver most effectively allows a sudden change in the power balance. A practical example of this lies in the tactic of the sit-in. And and it's it's um it's got a, a an energy of its own. You know, rather than try and plan stuff, things right. are going to happen in, in the moment, right? Inspiration. Well, it, it, the example of the sit-in was at the time when the auto workers created, and then even during the 60s, it was creative. It struck in a way that they didn't expect, but then they co-opted it quickly. So now they have like sit-in rooms. They have protest areas, free speech zones in cities. They corral the dissent quickly. You know, they, they absorb it. So you can't stay stuck in one tactic or it's used against you. You have to be fluid all the time and think of new ideas and recognize that there's no final outcome. 
in a war. There's just the latest event, and you can always build on that and use it to your advantage. So you got to think fluidly all the time, right? Mm-hmm. And, and just to close, um, I, I couldn't find it. Maybe it is in this book, but uh, co-Intel Pro? I, I just remember that phrase from a while back. The, the, these are intelligence um, personnel agents yeah. who, who are looking to uh, disrupt and undermine uh, very powerful truth tellers, you know, such as Co-intel. yourself. Have you have you got personal uh, oh. interaction experience and, and evidence of of them having gone through? Oh yeah, you know? Cointel Pro was created by the FBI back in the fifties. It is sure for something, right? Counter intelligence program. program, and and uh, it was aimed at uh, the American Indian Movement and Black Panthers. It destroyed them from okay. within, um, and that's a whole thing again about. Uh, you know, the methods they use to destroy groups. Uh, and th- they go in and they, they attack the most effective organizers and start a, a rumor campaign about them. They get people to sus- be so suspicious of each other that the group destroys itself from within. And that's happened to me four times now in four different campaigns I was involved in. And they use the same tactics every time, and it works every time because most people in the movement are new. They're kind of naive, and they don't uh, – they don't realize that their fears are being targeted, that they're being manipulated psychologically. Right? So, so their, their insecurities are, are actively being um, affected, uh, manipulated, but, but they, they don't know it. It's, it's well, yeah, hard. but again, it's, it's all the state can do. They have a set thing they do. And the purpose of this book was to show people what their tactics are so we can be educated and maneuver around it. Because if you say no to fear, no to misinformation, and, and I say to people, never believe a rumor about somebody, never pass on a rumor. Like, you know, the smears about me is, we hear this about Kevin. I say, okay, well, show me the evidence. Show me an eyewitness. And they never can because it's a rumor somebody started to get people gossiping. And that's a lot of what happens on the Internet. It's gossip, stuff you hear from somebody else. But I say, go to the person. Don't let yourself be divided. Don't ever have a personal conflict publicly. Work it out among yourselves. That's the methods they use to try to get people to fight each other. And it's so obvious what they do, and yet you've got to be a veteran and gone through it to see it, and you've got to persist to allow that knowledge to be shared with others, right? Right. The, the longevity is, is the evidence in itself, right? And, and with right. the gossip thing, it's, it's interesting. I, I just, uh, day before yesterday, was listening to um, a Dr. Andrew Kaufman, and, and he's saying exactly that, that, that the virus itself has not officially been isolated and identified and so, you know, it, it in itself is is a a rumor, right? It's, it's it's something that's been created that's that's smeared around. And it's a commercially viable rumor because I just saw a thing in the store the other day. It was a cleaning fluid, and it says get it gets rid of the COVID virus. And I thought, <laughs> right. well, shit. If all we're doing is we need a cleaner out of a can to get rid of the COVID virus, why well, have the shot people? So people just <laughs> use this stuff. They just make stuff up, and everyone just believes it because of the fear level, right? Right, completely, completely is. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's uh, let, let's wrap this up. Maybe uh, maybe uh, make it a, w- a weekend uh, regular. I'd thing. love to do this regularly because in a way we've just scratched the surface. There's a lot more we can get into, and, and let's do yeah, let's do more of this. Yeah, I, I, I think that you know today's one. It's another bit at the start. You know, we're sort of going right back to the beginning, but there was there was a really interesting bit for you and i was thinking to myself wow i wonder how many people are in this spot that you were in you know back in the 90s as as a young united church of canada clergyman and a inverted commas happily family man i was blind to the corporate entity i was part of until it reached out and destroyed my life 
But even when it attacked me, I continually denied what was happening to me because it was too fantastic and horrible to believe. Denial is a primary defense mechanism of the human mind and of entire communities. And I indulged in it unswervingly, even as my world was being destroyed. My greatest problem back then was that I refused to learn from my own experience. Mentally disarmed by my own denial, I was bushwhacked time and again and was nearly overwhelmed by those who wanted me dead and forgotten. The face and methods of war never change, only the circumstances and actors. And, and it, you know, it's, it's spookily uh, relevant and, and accurate how what, what, what you're writing in this book applies so directly to people just beginning this, this you know, unveiling of, of what's really going on in the world, right? Yes, and that's why I love holding workshops for people. Often we take like a Saturday for a few hours and take some of my books and relate this stuff to the actual issues and, and concerns people are involved in. And that's where I find that my, my best impact happens these days, just passing on the knowledge, acting like an elder and a mentor to others, but not telling them what to do, not giving them a blueprint, but encouraging them to you know think and act for themselves, and they'll learn their own truth about all of this. Right? Yeah. Smashing. Thanks, Steve. Thank you, brother. Yeah, you too. Yeah. Talk again. Talk to you again.